I was very blessed this last week to get to go to Wheeling, West Virginia for a biblical conference from the St. Paul, uh, Paul Center for Biblical Studies uh, out of Franciscan University at Steubenville. It's about 230-something of us priests from across the U.S. and even outside of the U.S., and gathering to get to listen to just some of my favorite teachers that are active today, like Scott Hahn and John Bergsma, Lawrence Feingold, Ralph Martin, Mike Aquilina. They were just wonderful, wonderful talks. It was so good, it was even worth the 14-hour round trip with Father Rossi. So, I mean, just that, it's incredible. Now, it was good to spend the week with him and a bunch of brother priests and just to get to take all of it in and just get to do all these studies. And... I'll tell you, it's like I've been drinking from a fire hose all week, and part of me wants to just be like, I want to tell you everything I learned. But I won't do that because we don't have all day. But I want to kind of focus on, in particular, some of the key things I learned from probably my favorite scholar who's active today, Dr. John Bergsma. And he gave us four lectures on, the first one was called St. Luke, the next one was St. Luke, the Gospel. The next one is St. Luke, the liturgical year. And then he kind of, in the last one, sort of like tied it all together, right? So when I say St. Luke, the liturgical year, what I mean by that is this. So, you know, the, the, we have three different cycles for our readings, right? So we are currently in year C. So during year C, we spend the time going through the Gospel of Luke. Year A is Matthew, year B is Mark, year C we get Luke, and then John gets fit in at different times. Like if you remember back to the Easter season, we spent a lot of time uh, in the Gospel of John. Well, Dr. Bergsma walked us through all of this, and as always, it was just amazing. And there are two main pieces I want to kind of pull out and share with you today, especially in light of all of the readings we get on this Sunday. And the first one is this. So when you look at the Gospel of Luke, it's divided up into four main sections. So the first three chapters are the infancy narratives. And Luke gives us a lot of things that we don't get in the other Gospels, a lot about our Blessed Mother. And like, you know, the, the instance, for example, when Jesus is 12 and the finding in the temple. Just a lot of beautiful things that we really reflect on during the Advent and Christmas season. And then the next uh, section from chapter 4 to the end of chapter 9, we get the initial like signs and teachings. So some initial miracles from Jesus and like his sermon on the plain, kind of like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And then you jump ahead to chapter 19 to 24, it's Holy Week. You get like Palm Sunday and Luke gives us more about the Last Supper, more details about what's going on in the Eucharist. And in fact... The only time in the entirety of the New Testament that the phrase New Testament is used is in reference to the Eucharist. This is the New Testament in my blood. It's an incredible thing. We'll unpack that more later. But like he goes through this, these awesome things. You know, Luke incorporates so much for Holy Week, including like the road to Emmaus. He's the only one who tells us about that. Now, maybe thinking to yourself, Father, you just skipped like 10 chapters there, buddy. I sure did. And here's why. We're in the midst of those 10 chapters now, and we basically will be for almost the rest of ordinary time. We're on the 17th Sunday right now. we got about 17 more to go. And we'll be in this section, and it's called, are you ready for this? The Death March. Okay, I bet you didn't know that before. It's been kind of new to me too. But starting at chapter 9, verse 51, 
It says, when Jesus' time to be taken up had come, he set his face toward Jerusalem. And for the next 10 chapters, he's on the march to Jerusalem. And we know what's coming in Jerusalem, the cross. It's there that he is going to be laying down his life. It's like you can see the sort of like storm clouds on the horizon as he's marching through these chapters. More and more confrontations with the scribes and the Pharisees, with just encountering the wickedness in this world. And he knows that at the end is coming his cross. That's why he sets his face toward Jerusalem. But the fascinating thing about that, and we pick up with this today, another thing that Dr. Bergsma pointed out for us, is St. Luke, more than all of the other Gospels, references the fact that Jesus very often stops and prays. More than any of the other evangelists, he tells us about these times that Jesus was praying, like the transfiguration. They went up the mountain and they were praying. He keeps referencing the fact that our Lord prays. And I find it very interesting that last Sunday, we got one of those scenes in the gospel that you only get in Luke, when Jesus goes to have dinner at the home of Martha and Mary, right? We we discussed that last week, and that closing line from the gospel last week is so important. Martha, Martha, you're anxious and worried about many things. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. And remember, what's that better part? Christ himself being in communion with our Lord, that she can sit there and listen to him and speak to him and be in this awesome relationship. What's the problem with Martha? It's not that she's cooking. It's not that she's doing things. It's a false dichotomy. There are 10 meals in the midst of the Gospel of Luke. In fact, Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. So obviously, he's ate and drank several times. So he's not against like cooking meals and doing work. What's the problem? Martha was anxious and worried about many things. Mary had her sights on Christ first. And this is why I bring that up again. You know, in in the original writing of the gospel, we don't have the breakdown of all the chapters. It just keeps moving. So as soon as he says, Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he was finished, it's amazing to me. It goes right from Mary is praying, is sitting at the feet of Jesus, and then immediately Luke tells us Jesus was praying in a certain place. It goes right from the fact that Mary sits at the feet of Jesus, listening to him, conversing with him, and then Jesus shows us that he sits at the feet of the Father, that he prays, that he has chosen the better part and is inviting us into the better part as well. It must have done it enough that his disciples want to know how to do this. How do I enter into this? How can I do what you do? And this next word is revolutionary, and we've heard it too many times because we don't realize how revolutionary it is. We've said it countless times, hopefully we'll say it a lot of times even today, and even in the liturgy, the missal puts on the words of the priest a way of saying, get ready, this is a big word. It says, we dare to say, our Father, right? Father. That's how he opens it up. When you are to pray, say, Father. And like I said, we say it so much, we don't think about the fact that this is unique. We're the only ones who do this. Followers of Jesus Christ. Other world religions 
don't refer to God as Father. In fact, in Islam, that's blasphemy. He's Allah. He's our taskmaster. He is not our Father. He commands us. Buddhism, it's just sort of an impersonal force. Hinduism, you've got all these gods and they're fighting against each other and you and da da da. All these different things. And even our elder brothers in the faith, the Jewish people, there's analogous things about the Father, but the word Father only gets used 17 times in the Old Testament. There's more of a distance than that. And I mean, you see it when the scribes and Pharisees are accusing of Jesus and saying, He called God his Father, He made Himself equal to God. God himself, Jesus Christ, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, tells us when you pray, say, Father. He's inviting us into this relationship, into the relationship that we've been created in the image and likeness thereof. Father loving the Son and loving each other so much that another person is there, the Holy Spirit. And notice, he said, Mary chose the better part. And then when they ask how to pray, he invites us into that relationship. If you look back at the first reading, there's part of the problem, right? Abraham is praying for these people of Sodom, right? They've turned their back on the image and likeness of God. They've taken the great gift of sexuality and made it an idol. Gone for that instead of the love and communion of God. And then all of a sudden, there is no new life coming about. We see the same temptations today, right? Tomorrow is the 54th anniversary of Humani Vitae, the church upholding the teaching against contraception. Why? Because the gift of sexuality is for husbands and wives coming together, loving one another in a faithful union until death do them part to bring new life into the world. It's a gift, a wonderful one, and one that we have to treat well when we don't. Life goes away. But of course, like Abraham, we're called to pray for others. They repent that they come into this, that we stay in it ourselves. And notice too, I know as we go through that reading, every time, this is the third time I've heard it this Sunday, I'll hear it in Spanish in about an hour and a half, right? It goes on and on. How about 50? How about 45? How about 40? You know, it's just like, geez, it just keeps going. But it's not as though God is the one who's changing, it's Abraham. When we enter into that relationship, when we keep praying, we grow in perseverance, we grow in love, we grow in trust in seeing how good God is. And by the way, what happens eventually with Sodom, I mean, God is more merciful than Abraham even gets to. He finally kind of finds four righteous ones. You got Lot, his wife, their two daughters. They try to get all of them and the daughter's fiancés out. Fiancés don't have anything to do with it. So the four go, uh, Lot's wife is still totally attached to Sodom. She ends up getting destroyed too. One other fun fact that I got to learn this weekend uh, is the fact that they've been doing archeological digs there at the site of Sodom. And they found this stuff, like some pottery with like this glaze to it. They sent it off for study. And what's on it is something called tannite, which is basically what forms when you drop a nuclear bomb and it melts the sand and it turns into glass. And scholars are just blown away by this. But here it is. And what does God want for us? Not that. Not turning in on ourselves. Not turning away from him. He wants us to be with him in all things. To the very depths of our being. To even the little things that we need, right? Look at the way that Jesus goes through these petitions. 
Everything kind of goes along about bread. Give us each day our daily bread. He gives the story of the friend at night. Give me three loaves of bread. No, we're all locked up tonight. Please give me three loaves of bread. Eventually he's going to respond. You know, and then going on, you who are wicked, know how to give your kids good things. More food stuff, right? Who among you, if your son asks for a fish, is going to give him a snake? Asks for an egg, is going to give him a scorpion? And I love the way it ends. How much more will the Father in heaven give, what, a golden corral gift card to those who ask him? You know, like really good food, a whole lot of it? No. Goes from all this food to how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He knows the little things that we need, right? He knows what our earthly needs are, our material needs. He'll provide. And that's why when you think about the church's teaching on openness to life, don't be afraid. Our Father provides. He wants us to imitate him, to love him, to trust in him, and he will bring us into that communion. Something so good for us. And our Lord shows us on this death march in which he's on his way to Jerusalem. The cross is always on the horizon in this section. And yet, he's not anxious. He's not worried. Why? Because he is in communion with his Father. And he wants us to be there too. I mean, think about this. Like, you know how sometimes you're really hungry and you finally get a good meal? It's like, oh, that's great. But it's not as though you're satisfied forever. And yet, when it comes to relationships, I was just thinking about this, you know, I'm at this conference this week, right? And you know how sometimes, like, if you're around a group of people, there's like three people having a conversation and you're kind of on the outside, but you'd like to be on the inside. And then one of them turns is like, hey, how are you? What do you think? And invites you in. It's a lovely feeling. It's so good. Why? Because we're called to communion. We're supposed to be known and to know. We're created in the image and likeness of God. And what does this gospel show us? God wants us to be in that communion. When you pray, say, Father. And that's the second person of the Holy Trinity teaching us this. He wants us to be in the communion that he's been in for all eternity. Wants it so much that he's willing to come and call us to repentance, to die for us on the cross, to invite us into it after the resurrection, to pour out the Holy Spirit upon us. He wants us to know what is so good, what we were created for, ultimately heaven, which is communion with him forever. One of my favorite phrases from this week was, what we're ultimately made for is to get to heaven and to bring as many people with us as we can. It's a beautiful thing to think about and one that I think we need to make sure we think about every day. Because just like our Lord for us, the cross is always there, right? He said, if you would be my disciple, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. But that's not just some sort of like, you know, put your head down and do it, darn it. No, what does he want? He wants us to be like him, not anxious and worried about many things, but in communion with him, in communion with his father, in communion with the Holy Spirit. When you think about that and all of the bread analogy, what does he use to bring us into it? His very self, given to us under the forms of bread and wine. He knows what we need. He knows better than we know most of the time. He invites us into that communion. My brothers and sisters in Christ, accept that invitation. Praise be Jesus Christ. Amen.